You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Good morning. Be reading from Genesis 1, verse 1 through 2. Not the whole thing, which at first I thought. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. What a morning. Have you ever had a morning? Uh, uh, Just a wonderful shout out to you, Mean, back there, who got our slides working, technical difficulties. Yeah. I was in JFK two hours ago. Uh, And uh, so I'm still still at 30,000 feet, but we're going to try to to land this, land this plane. Um, let me just pray for us, pray for myself. Before we call you answer, you are one who does not break faith. Those who seek shall find. And those who hunger and thirst for what it means to be right and whole, they will find it fully to satisfaction. These are all your promises and these are all your words. And to them we say yes and amen. All right, Uh, friends. I'm Patrick, if we haven't met, uh, and by the looks of it, I don't know all of you, so uh, let's, let's change that. Uh, if, if this is your first Sunday, you're coming at a, at a beautiful time, a new time, and a kind of a different time, and here's what I mean by that. We just referenced it during the announcement, but we've just began uh, a journey of sorts through the story of God. I'm, I'm going to really encourage you to go back and listen to last week's teaching that kind of introduce this series as a whole. I don't really want to recap that, but I do kind of want to give you what you'll need to know for today and as we journey forward, if, if you aren't aware. Um, and, and that is, we are beginning a narrative progression through the Old and New Testaments, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And we're, and we're doing this in search to allow the full narrative and story of not just creation, not just mankind, but primarily of God, allow it to rise from the pages and start to inform the way we see all the individual things we've picked out and, and dissected and interpreted along the way. Right. And so what that means for for us today is is uh, last week was an intro into the series in mass. Today, we have divided the scriptures into 16 chapters and we are starting 
the first chapter, creation and the fall, but we're starting with a prologue of sorts. And so what, what I mean by that is today, I, my, my aim and my desire for us is to give us the, the context and the scope by which this story begins. And I think it's important that we do that before we just jump straight into the storytelling so that you can really understand what's happening beneath the words and what's happening beneath the kind of most obvious understanding of the words, right? So I want to give you the kind of the, the context for the people that wrote these words and that first received these words. And I also want to provide that in a context for us today. What what does this mean for us? What are we looking for? Now, we'll do a little meaning making today, but tomorrow and kind of going forward, there won't be a ton of meaning making. And so what I mean by that, your typical kind of Sunday morning experience, usually I'll, or somebody in this place and, and, and standing where I am and with the mic will, will give you some things about God and about the Christian faith. And we kind of take you to the door of understanding and hope that the spirit will help illuminate what it means for you personally. And today what I really want to do is, is to kind of just give us this context for a story that we're gonna start, which means you might not walk away with this feeling of like, oh, that was tidily resolved. You should kind of walk away with it to be continued. I've got to come back and see where, what does this mean and where this is going? And so I just want to call our attention to that because it may be a little discomforting. I don't think much. I mean, again, it's just listening to a story. We're not in war. So, um, but I want to frame for us the intention for our teaching today. And, and really, the reason why, if I can give you a short, why we're even in, embarking on this to give you a taste of what you'll go back and listen to, is because in this community, we hold eight intentions by which we set our rule of life or the intentional rhythms and practices we keep that bring us into intimacy with Jesus. By doing these things with intention, whether that be uh, uh, having uh, active rhythms of prayer or uh, pursuing justice and peace in all our activities, what we are hoping is that as we engage with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God will abide with us and that will bring so much fruit. And our very first practice, the very first step of the good way, as we call it, are being people rooted in the story of God. And so this is where this practice emerges from, because right from the beginning, we realize this is a story. This is not a manual. This is not a textbook. This is not a technical document. It is an invitation to, in a way of understanding yourself and the world around you. And this is a story of a very particular people, the Israelite people in ancient Mesopotamia, surrounded by coming, a small group of people that came out of the larger Canaanite people. And this is the story about their God, Yahweh, who we believe becomes the God of all, and the God of us who aren't Israelite. Now, this story started much like we're doing here. It started around tables as people made sense of the world and talked about that news. It started on the laps of grandfathers and on the bedside of children. These were stories that little ones heard about who they were and why they were and where they were in the grand cosmos. And for the Israelite people, 
This oral tradition, there was no need to write it down because life was relatively stable. The kingdom of the Israelite people had split into two. <clears throat> so if you think about it, there was, there was northern kingdom, which was Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, Judah. They were once united, but differences called them, caused them to split. But the two kingdoms shared a common history. And things were relatively stable. And so there, there wasn't a need to, to, to really kind of crystallize or codify all of their stories. It was good enough just being something you would say in the ears of the ones you love. But all that changes in 587 BC because, see, in comes the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were uh, a mass empire <clears throat> moving across the mass Mesopotamia. And they were taking cultures and grafting them in. They were displacing them from their homes. They were giving them new names. And then they were bringing them up under the Babylonian way, including the Babylonian stories and the Babylonian gods. This is an important concept when we think about the scriptures and what we're reading. Because it's in this place of exile for a dispossessed, oppressed people that they are trying to hold on to who they are as they're surrounded by brainwashing, gaslighting, as they're surrounded by this dominant narrative that's trying to tell them, hey, you are now a Babylonian. You are not an Israelite. And so as they're in exile, they realize, oh, this is not going to just work in, in words. We've got to write this down. And so the elite that had been taken away from the southern kingdom, they begin to write what we know as the Old Testament. Eighty percent of the Old Testament was written, written during this exilic period when all the southern kingdom of Israel had been taken under ba Babylonian captivity. And then right after. And what happens when a people return to what was once their land and now is somewhat of a strange land, they have to begin to rebuild. And they're not just rebuilding the temple, the place where they worshiped, they're rebuilding their social fabric. See, there were, there were people that had gone into exile who didn't come back that held some of those stories. And there were little kids who were born in exile who now are in this land and they don't understand why Yahweh is all that important when Baal and Marduk, they sound just fine. In some families, you had sons that had Hebrew names and sons that had Babylonian names. And so we begin, the Israelite people begin to write their stories to say, this is who we are. And it's not just, a, it's not just a, 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 a strengthening or a reaffirming, but it's also a political act. It's an act of rebellion. It's a push against empire. It's a reclamation of identity when you live in a world that tries to tell you that you're not what you've, you know you have been. The one of the largest tales of all time, older than the Bible, uh, is the Enuma Eilish. The Enuma Eilish is the Babylonian story of how the world began. And so for those that were in exile, they were surrounded by the tales of the Enuma Eilish. And I just wanna read to you how the Enuma Eilish begins. 
This is on the first tablet of seven uh, that is, uh, archaeologists have uncovered, and it says this. When on high, the heavens had not been named, firm ground below had not been called by name, nothing but primordial Apsu, the begetter, or the craftsman, the one who makes, and Mumu Tiamat, she who bore them all, their waters commingling as a single body. So in the Babylonian creation myth and their story of how the world started, there was a mass still, but over this mass, there was, these, there was a freshwater god, Apsu, and the saltwater god, Tiamat, and together they join, and out of that life begins to produce other forms of godliness. And I, I won't, we'll do a deep dive about that uh, in podcast form, but, but there's this chaotic waters that begin the Babylonian myth. And then it ends up in war and death and all the gods fighting for control. Now, as you keep that in your mind, I want us to invite us into our teaching text. And our teaching text today, in this chapter of creation and fall, I want to argue that this is the central verse that should really frame us as we move forward into the story of God. Listen, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I talked about this being a political act. What does it mean when the Babylonian gods are water and out of them flows earth and the Israelite God hovers over those waters? My God is over your God. Your gods are chaotic. The Babylonian myth goes into all manner of war and family strife and it's too much to name here. But the creation myth, the Israelites, it moves into order. And here's what's very interesting as we start this journey. This is verse two, the spirit of God hovers over these chaotic waters. If you go down in verse 20, God, Yahweh, pulls back these chaotic waters and he puts them in their place. He practices power and might over the Babylonian gods, but he doesn't destroy them. Instead, in verse five, he pulls them back and in verse 20, he places a sea monster Tiamat is what it says in verse 20 in the Old Testament. So he places these sea monsters in it. And now what he does is he makes the chaotic waters ordered and then he makes it a sign of his goodness and a display of his power. Later in the book of Job, when Job is questioning the power of God, God points again to Tiamat. He points to the ferociousness of, these chaos, of this chaotic water serpent. And he says, look, 
I created this and I own this sea monster and it declares my glory because I have toilet where to go. For the Israelite people, there's a repatriation, there's a calling into themselves and the story that they tell begins with a God who hovers over all the things that have oppressed them but then is going to pull those things into his story as a display of his goodness. And that's the thing that we're gonna track all the way through the scriptures. This Israelite God, Yahweh, and what he does with chaos. Uh, A few weeks ago, I, I guess about a month ago now, I had taught somewhat on this, this passage. And I, if you remember, it was the start of our Advent service, and I talked about uh, the Word of God and the God of silence. And what do we do with this God who is silent, but then when he speaks, all the chaos is put in order, and life, life can mature and to flourish. And after that teaching, I got a a couple of people who asked a simple question, but I really wish you would speak to the silence. What of the silence of God? What do I make with a God who sits over chaos and allow people to die and wars to be fought and, and, and children to be lost and doesn't speak if he knows that in speaking, life will come? How do I reckon with that? I would bring us back to this formative start of our story, Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness or chaos covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God places boundaries on chaos so that he can ultimately redeem it and bring it into his plans. And this is good news because chaos is me. If God immediately eradicates everything that is evil, I would be included. If he was as just as I wanted him to be, to the Babylonian gods, he would also have to be that just with me. And instead, he hovers and he waits and he shows his loving kindness until such a time that he pulls it all together into what he calls the very good. And in the same way, he meets me when I was chaotic. Apostle Paul says that while we were yet sinners, while we were creatures of chaos, trying to be other gods, he dies for us. He redeems us. So this, what do I make of the silence? I am like conflictedly grateful for it. 
I hate the chaos that I reap. I hate the chaos that I see in the world. I want it all to be cleaned up and tidy. And yet I am thankful for God who doesn't just eradicate and annihilate. This is what forms the story of God. One who hovers. One who hovers. And so you can imagine what this does for the people who first heard this story and the first told these stories. There is a hope that rises. They serve a God who eventually takes up their cause and redeems what is lost and makes all things new. That sounds like really good news. Later, we'd call it the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. And so as we close today, and I, and I hope we've been able to kind of provide the context, so as next week we're going to start, we're going to jump into the chapter. There's no more setup. We're in it. The prologue's done. We've read the front cover. We're going to start with this God in full, and we're going to look at his story. But where I want to leave us is this understanding. Um, you could imagine how for the Israelites, this good news hit the different people uh, in a diverse array um, of understanding. So for those who knew freedom and the new oppression, for them, the good news of, of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is a God who has defeated Tiamat, who has defeated the Babylonians. But for those who didn't know that, who were born into exile and now have come out, for them, the good news is that their, their God, the people of their God, is the best. <laughs> He's the strongest and the mightiest. They all resonate with this story differently. Neither is more true than the other. But together they create a harmony of understanding and a richness to this story. And so when I come forward for us, where I wanna, where I wanna land for us today is our particular understanding as the people of Oak Church Brooklyn. How are we receiving this good news? What's it to us who aren't Israelite and are so far removed from the shores of Babylon? How does this become good news for us? Well, there are seven ways we are receiving the gospel in this community, but for this first chapter, as we move through the first, what will be the 12 chapters of Genesis, but the first chapters of our exploration, there's five ways that I just wanna highlight real quick. You don't need to try to memorize these. You can take a picture if you want. What I would ask you is that as you listen to them, I would ask you to just let whatever one settles in your mind and your heart, that you would just grasp that. Don't worry about catching them all. Just grasp one that may be pertinent to you. And I want you to hold that in your heart as you come and as we tell the story. And I want you to pull onto that thread and I want you to follow it and see what's at the end of it. You got me? You're tracking with me? Okay. Here are those gospel themes. How... Genesis 1 and beyond becomes good news for us today. The first is invitational. 
This good news gives us meaning and purpose. We are being invited into a story. Maybe the story that you've been living in uh, has been one of tragedy, has been one of, of conquest. And there's an invitation for you to come into a story with a God who can conquer and, pull into, and to, can pull into boundaries your Babylon. Maybe life is good, but it feels kind of too good, ultimately meaningless. There's an invitation into a story where this God is doing something and he wants you to be a part of it. This gospel is invitational. The story is invitational. Second, the story, this gospel is holistic. It concerns the fullness of being human. As we move to in, this, in the weeks to come, you will start to hear about this isn't just a gospel of the mind. This isn't just a gospel of our, of our souls, but it's also a gospel of our bodies. And I think that's so important for people who can so often get disconnected from their bodies and realize that God has something to say about your toes. He has considered the shape of your back. He knows your width. And he calls it good. What a gospel for all of you. Third, the gospel is personal. As you track through Genesis, I'm going to ask you to, to think about how this is a gospel for individuals. God is talking to very particular people. So when we use the term God, which can mean any sort of thing, can all feel over and above truly a God who hovers. And yet this God, this God wants to go for walks. The gospel is personal. Next, the gospel is generative. The good news of the Genesis story is that Yahweh seeds life. Where God is, life can begin. It isn't always gonna look the same. It's actually gonna be very diverse, but it will all be beautiful in its own way. So maybe you're in a place where you have only known death and loss. Would you come into this generative story? And lastly, this gospel, the story of God, it is communal, meaning it is for everyone together. This gospel has something to say about peoples, uh, those in power and those under power. And it's not something that we go through alone, but we get to go through together. This is our story. This is our story. So that's the introduction to chapter one, creation and fall. And next week we will begin with exploring the creator. This is unique, but we got like four and a half minutes. 
I was meaning that in a different way. Uh, in that, anybody got any questions? Yes. I could not tell you. Uh, I mean, even with this, what we're working with are, are artifacts and scrolls. Uh, you know, through biblical archaeology, we can understand the times when, like, Genesis and the books of the Old Testament were written. So we know they're, like, the late B.C. era. This is post when the Israelite people were in conquest, but we don't, they were oral, so we, you know, what's interesting is that for the Israelites, they were a small group of people uh, within like the Canaanite people. Uh, and so at one point, this, this, this people group kind of breaks off from their surrounding nations. And uh, scholars would say that with the writing of the gospel, you really have a codifying of a monotheistic culture. This is kind of new for, for the region. And so I say that to say there's, we don't know how the stories were when they were just written, but for a lot of those cultures, they were lost to antiquity. There are cultures that we don't even know exist because all they have is oral tradition that died when the last person with those stories died. And so it's actually very peculiar that this small group of people, because only about 4,000 came back from exile uh, into the Southern Kingdom, mostly elite people and that they decided to start writing their stories. Um, it was a, it's, it's, an, it's new technology. Writing doesn't seem like technology to us these days, but it was, it was as new as the iPhone 15 uh, then. Yeah, is that helpful? Cool, yeah, I don't know everything, and so I'm just, we'll see. If I can't answer, I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> Any, yes? Yeah, Kristen, I, hear, I heard the question is, do, do I read Genesis 1 as poetry or something else? Yes, it is in the Hebrew a poem. These are poems, and so it should be understood as such. Um, I have written a lot of poetic things to my wife. <laughs> Let me finish. I know I'm on thin ice, but watch this. <laughs> I've just never seen her fly in real life. So if you, take, if you take this poem as something other than what it's trying to say, you can start to get yourself in trouble. So we're not trying to establish like an archeological understanding of the age of the earth. It's not the point of what this is. Genesis really serves as a, as a, and particularly the first 12 chapters, serve as really a prologue, the introduction to the themes that are going to run through all the way to Revelation. So uh, there's a lot of interesting things like that. And even names like uh, an atropnym is, is a name that, you know, is kind of a wink, you know, like the way that Hagar name means like runaway, you know. Uh, so it's kind of hard to understand. Um, you just have to be careful. I could say more on that, but I'll pause.
Yeah. Mm, I like this. The question was, do you think that the use of water in the beginning of the stories is kind of a motif that, that's there to kind of run through the, you know, throughout the, the biblical narrative? Um, yeah, it's definitely a sign, right? Uh, I, I can't say for sure why. I, I think, you know, again, it's poetry, so I don't think um, there's... How did the world begin? I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there was water, had to be. You know, we know that. Uh, <laughs> but I think literally and thematically what we do see is, this is there's a, always a calling back, right? So when we get into the baptism of Jesus and the institution of baptism, what does that say to a people who know that like their God is passing through the waters? He's passing through chaos. Beneath chaos is death, right, is nothing. And then he passes through it and he comes up out of it into life. So these themes carry forward. I think we got time for one more if anybody's feeling frisky. Yes. So 80% was, uh, yeah, exile and post-exilic. Uh, no, the books were not written, written in order. Uh, so, you know, one would say that Genesis is actually written much later. You can kind of see in how like one and two feel like two different tries at the same thing. Um, I don't know, again, it was oral tradition before then, so I don't know what was written, but best guess of biblical archeology, span yeah, you're, you're gonna typically probably start with the prophets like Lamentations or, or, or Jeremiah or something in there as people are coming back and are, and are heavy hearted and are trying to make sense of the pain. Um, and then you kind of move into some of the, oh, let's go to Genesis and say how this all began. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and then a follow-up question. Sure. Yeah. Is that an attempt at I think genealogies are doing a couple of things. Um, one, genealogies serve as like a fast forward, right? So we get to kind of skip a couple of periods where ain't much going on. Uh, and then we get into stories. Uh, two, it's, it's helping people track the narratives, the important people. And three, you have to remember that in ancient Mesopotamia, when we talk about eternal life, you're, you're talking about children. This is what it meant for, for Abraham, what it meant to have children that outnumbered the stars meant that he would live forever. So what God is offering him, what God is saying to him, maybe it'll sound familiar, is that if you follow me, I will give you eternal life. That's the semblance of children. And so, because that, that's how I possess, I have a child, 
They helped me survive in an agrarian society. I'm also passing down the stories of our people to them and they go and they on and they go on and so forth. In a hundred years, none of us will be here. How much do you know about your great, great grandfather? How much do you talk about your great, great grandmother? Do you even know what they look like? What happens a hundred years past that? They're gone. Particularly before text messages and hard drives and pictures, you were just gone. And so what these, what these genealogies do is, is carry the story forward in more ways than one and really serve as life, life being, life flourishing. I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, so here's what we're gonna do. If you stand with me. I mentioned that this, this faith is, this gospel is a communal one. And I also mentioned that this gospel is, is a holistic one, that it's for our bodies. And this is why every week we come to the table. Because there's nothing that bars anyone from this meal other than not believing that the one who sent it loves them. So we come and eat and we're reminded of a story. Our minds go back to the first night when Jesus took the bread and having been portrayed said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and do this often in remembrance of me. And after supper, likewise, he took the cup and said, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant, drink it and do it often in remembrance of me because every time that you eat this bread and drink this blood, you profess, you profess that Christ is Lord. That's what Paul says. And so when we take communion, our minds go back, but our bodies come present. And we remember that this old story is for me today and it fills me and it satisfies me. And so I'm gonna invite our, our communion servers are gonna come forward and I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna invite us into a, a holistic communal response that you would come to the table. There will be gluten-free over here if, uh, if your diet needs it and you will receive the bread and the cup. And then we're gonna invite you to receive prayer. Maybe there's been something in your story this week or in recent, recent time that uh, you could use help holding and we would love to pray for you. And then we're just gonna worship and sing, putting these, these words to poem and letting our hearts scream them out. So, so however you need to respond, I just pray that you would. Please don't let the day go by without responding to this good news. So, Trinity, God, Yahweh, we thank you. We come in remembrance that you would restore and redeem our mind, our bodies, and our souls. We give you praise. Amen. So come and respond, church. <laughs>